Chapel, Mason City. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 today. I've entitled the message, But God. You've heard this term before, probably the two greatest words, at least to my ears, in the Scripture. Now, everybody loves the good before and after story, right? I like those shows. I like to watch this one called Restaurant Impossible. Has everybody ever seen that show? Chef Robert Irvine. He comes into a restaurant that's failing, and in 48 hours with $10,000, he just rehabs their whole restaurant and their whole life and everything. It's just, a, I love that show. A good before and after story. And that's what we're going to see today in this scripture, but it does start in a very dark place, and so I'll let you know about that. Starts off with darkness and ends up with light. So a little context, Paul has described the spiritual blessings that are the Ephesians, that things that belong to them, adoption, forgiveness of sins, redemption, all those things in chapter 1. And then the next message we got into Paul then praying that the Ephesians would understand all of these spiritual blessings. And we talked about last time how if the Holy Spirit doesn't do something, these are just words on a page. And we talked about how somebody could have been a Christian their whole life and still be very immature because they haven't been taught spiritual things by the Holy Spirit. They're not seeking the Holy Spirit's guidance. And so that's where we've been so far. Paul said, here's all these spiritual blessings. I pray that you understand these blessings. And the last passage ended, if you look at it there, chapter 1, verses 20, uh, starts at... Let's see, it starts at verse 20, and it goes through the end of that chapter. It talks about God's power. Remember we ended last time with God's power, and there were three manifestations of it? He says, which he worked in Christ, talking about his power, when he raised him from the dead. There's God's power in raising Christ from the dead, and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality, dominion, and not only in this age, but also age which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who, fulfill, or who fills all in all. That's all talking about God's power. Now, just because there's a chapter break and a chapter division here, don't get put off by that because chapter two begins on that same topic and that same line of thinking about God's power. And in verse one, it says, and you, notice the word and, it's a continuation of what was going on. He says, and you, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of, the, of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others." Heavenly Father, as we open your word today, we pray that you would make this book live to us, God, that you would show us our Savior, that you would show us ourselves, that you would encourage us, that you would instruct us, and we do ask in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Starts off with who we were, and that's the first point in verses 1 through 3. This is who all people outside of Christ, this is who we were before we became born again, before we knew Christ. And he says, first of all, that we were... Uh, dead in trespasses and sins. As Paul is talking to these Ephesians, he's reminding them, you were dead in trespasses and sins. <coughs> Notice where, right there in verse 1 where it says, and he and you he made alive. Is that in italics in your Bible? 
Okay, so the reason that is in italics is because that is not in the oldest manuscripts. So the translators added that there to kind of go along with the point. If you look down in verse 5, uh, that same phrase is there, so it's, that's the topic, you know, that's the whole thing. But uh, he, they just added it there, I think to be encouraging, maybe. I don't know, it's almost like it's so dark right here. <laughs> they just he started this section with like, and you he made alive. He says, you were dead. Now, this is the state of all humans be before becoming born again. You remember back in the Garden of Eden uh, that God put Adam and Eve there, and he said, hey, you can eat everything in this garden. You can do whatever you want, except for there's one thing I don't want you to do. Don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat the fruit off of that tree. And, of course, they ate it, you know, and uh, that's what we would do too, right? You say, I wouldn't have done that. Well, you would have done the same thing, you know, and uh, so... But remember what God said? He said, in the day you eat this, you will surely what? You'll surely die, right? And they ate, but they didn't just keel over dead right there. So at that time, death, now humans would die. It wasn't going to happen, but now it will happen. Humans will die. But another form of death took place that day. They died spiritually, right? Now, and that's what Paul is talking about here. He says that you were dead. He's talking about you are ancestors of Adam and Eve. You've inherited original sin. Now, it goes on to say that the reason that they were dead, now look at it there. It says because of their trespasses and sins. Trespasses and sins, if you see that in your Bible there. I don't know if we have a slide for that scripture. Maybe not. We probably don't, but trespasses and sins. Now, there are two different things being said there. This is why they were uh, dead. Now, trespasses uh, is, is a certain type of breaking God's law, and sin is another. I remember when I was young, uh, I grew up on a farm, and we had 25 acres. It was a beautiful place. Until about 2005, we never had to put a sign out anywhere that said no trespassing. But Eventually, had some vandals. They came on the property, and uh, my stepdad had to put up some signs that said no trespassing. And that gives you the idea of what is meant by a trespass here. It's taking a step over a line, a deliberate step. So when he says trespasses, this is when somebody takes a deliberate step over one of the lines that God has drawn. This is a deliberate breaking of God's laws. And when he says sins, now that's an archery terms. Anybody ever in, into archery? Yeah. I mean, you know, you shoot the, the arrow and you try to get right to the middle of the thing. And, you know, and if you don't hit the bullseye, uh, then, you know, then you're a sinner. That's, it's an old game. It's an old English game, actually, called Sinner, where you, if, you, if you didn't hit the middle, anybody else that didn't hit the middle was a sinner. So it just means simply to miss the mark. Now, where transgressions is like a deliberate breaking of God's law, sin could just be missing the mark, even though you've intended to hit the mark. So you have intentional and unintentional sins. And because of those things, Paul says to the Ephesians, you were dead spiritually because of trespasses and sins. This is their state before becoming born again. In verse 2, it also says here that they were obedient to the influence of Satan. He says, dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. This is the second thing that marks the unbeliever, is they walked according to the course of this world. Now, you ever heard the term like, go with the flow? These are people that are just going with the flow 
of the world around them. Remember a story of a guy, he said his mom always used to tell him that, uh, uh, you know, any dead fish can go with the flow, but it takes life to swim upstream, right? Now, that's what Paul is saying about unbelievers. They just go with the flow of this world. Now, it goes on to expand that. It says, according to the prince of the power of the air. Now, that is just another name for Satan. What Paul is saying is this world is under the influence of Satan. And the people that just go with the flow of this world are therefore under the influence of Satan. The materialism, the greed, the hatred, the addictions, the abuse, the gender confusion, these things that you're seeing, abuse of sex, pornography, murder of babies, the styles even, the trends, the music, all these things that are outside of Jesus Christ, all of this makes up the world and its influence. You say, no doubt, I open the news and I can tell there's a devil just like that. You know, it's, it's not a surprise to any of us. But Paul says that you, Ephesians, this is what you did, is you walked according to the course of this world. Then he goes on to say even more, he expands it even more. He says, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Now that is saying that the spirit of Satan is at work in the unbelieving world. And it is a spirit of disobedience. You say, no doubt, I think I can recognize this spirit kind of in myself. Let me see if you have this spirit in yourself. I'm going to tell you that you need to do something. Now, most of you probably were, you know, when you get told you need to do something, you've got this voice inside of you that says, says who? <laughs> you talking to me? You do it. Okay, that is proof that you have learned something from this spirit of disobedience. You want some further proof? Have you ever raised kids? Did you have to tell the kids, did you have to train them to be disobedient or obedient? Well, there we go. Because like it says there, the, you know, the course of this world is according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons and daughters and babies of disobedience. And Paul is saying that is the story of all people that are outside of Christ. You don't have a choice because you're born into Adam and Eve's sin and you're born into a world which the world is actually ruled by the devil. Now, in the book of John, John calls Satan the ruler of this age. Do you remember when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness and Satan offers him the whole world? Remember that? Jesus doesn't dispute with him and say, hey, this isn't your world. Because we know that it, when Adam and Eve in the garden, when they sinned, they forfeited dominion and they gave it to Satan. And we know in the book of Revelation, there's a time where the seal will be opened again. And the angels, everybody's like, who can open the seal? Who's worthy to open the seal? And Jesus Christ comes in and he opens the seal, which is likened to like the title deed of the earth. He takes it back. He takes it out of the dominion of Satan. This world is under the sway and the influence and control of Satan. And the people that are going with the flow of this world are under his control with that spirit of disobedience at work in them. Now, there's no neutral ground. And this is where a lot of people get tripped up today. They think, you know, I'm not really making a choice about Jesus one way or the other. I'm just kind of neutral to this whole thing. No, you're not. 
You're going with the pattern of this world that's in rebellion to God. Now, there's another tragedy out there where Christians are trying to have it both ways. They say, I like the world so much that I don't know if I can be all in with Jesus, but I like Jesus so much that I just don't know if I'm torn. That is a miserable place to be, trying to have it both ways. No. The Spirit who works in the sons of disobedience. This is grim, right? Now, it gets even further here. There's one more thing that marks the unbeliever. Verse 3 says, Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Now, that term right there, this is a heavy-duty term. People that are in this unbelieving state are children of wrath. What that means is God's just punishment is poured out upon them and they will be judged justly for their rebellion towards God. They're children of wrath. He says there that this is what they do. They conduct, he says, we used to conduct ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. Now, that term, lusts of our flesh, it's an interesting thing to think about for a second. We normally hear the word lust and we think, oh, it's just a bad thing. Lust is a bad thing. But this word in the Greek, epithumia, it's a compound word and it just means over-desire. Epi means over, you know, like the epidermal layer. Of, it means epithumia, it means over-desire. So a lust can be for a bad thing, certainly, you know, uh, but the idea of lust of the flesh is not only lust for bad things, it's also over-desires for good things. Because we have a fallen nature, we tend to try to take good things and make them God things. We try to take good things to the extreme. I think you can relate with this, right? You know, something good, you come across something good, you find a good recipe, you find a good restaurant, you do something like this, or, you know, and you just want, if unchecked, you want, you know, you go to the buffet and you're like, oh boy, those green beans, man. I mean, I got to get back up there, you know. And it's just an over-desire. Our flesh over-desires things. And over-desire for acceptance leads to me subjecting myself possibly to a bad relationship. The over-desire for sex leads to perversions of sex, pornography, sex outside of marriage, sex outside of what God has prescribed sex to be for. I mean, an over-desire for food leads to gluttony. I mean, you can think about this, and that's what he's saying. He says that we all just used to conduct ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, and he goes on saying, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind. The unsaved have no other option but to live life for their own desires. They just don't have any other option. Unless you have been invaded by this alien life of Christ coming inside of you and living in you, giving you new desires, you have no choice but to follow your own desires. There's no other way. Now he says, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now, there are some incredibly religious-looking people on the outside, but in their mind, their mind is corrupt. You know, you can sit and daydream all day long about things that you should probably tell yourself to stop it. You know, 
And that's what he's talking about. He's saying that's what they did all day long. They just want and they crave. Life is all about what I can get next and what sort of thing I can acquire. And like, that's what life's all about to the unbeliever. You see the three enemies of the Christian in this passage already, the world, the devil, and the flesh. All three of those have a mold that they are trying to squeeze you into. Any dead fish can go down the stream. It takes life to swim up the stream. You need the life of Christ in you. It's pretty dark. Dead in trespasses and sins. Obedient to the influence of Satan, children of, of God's wrath. I remember a show that I used to watch when I was a kid. And uh, it was called Magnum P.I. Anybody ever remember that? I can still remember the theme song. You guys remember that theme song? I brought a picture, you know. Now, you know, I remember Magnum P.I., but actually I can only really remember one episode. And sure enough, there's a picture on the internet of like the scene that I remember from when I was a kid. Now, old Magnum had been, that's Tom Selleck, by the way. He, Mr. Mustache himself, uh, he had been in an airplane. The airplane went down. He's way out in the middle of the ocean by himself, and he's got his waterproof watch on. Remember how cool that was back in the 80s, man? You, had to, you know. Uh, and this guy, the whole episode, he's stranded out there, and he's treading water, and the whole episode is his life flashing before his eyes, and then he goes down for a little bit, and he almost passes out for a while, and he's treading water. And I remember as a kid, I was sitting there. I was watching this. I was terrified because I was able to like put, you know, empathize, and you put your mind in there, and you go... Dude, there's, there's nothing to grab onto. There's nothing below you. I mean, you go down, you try to touch the bottom. You can't touch the bottom. There's nothing. There's nothing you can do. You are scrambling. The only way out of that is you need to be rescued. That's it. And that is the same condition that the unbeliever is in today. There's nothing you can do. Nothing. There's no work you can do. There's nothing to grab onto. You can't look back and say, I did some work in my past. I did something. There's nothing you can grab onto. There's nothing you can hold onto. That's the unbeliever. With or without the mustache. <laughs> in verses 4 through 7, now we're going to see what God did. And it starts with the two words, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." The change from hopelessness and utter despair to unspeakable joy. How is this change brought about? What did God do? Well, first of all, he did it out of his character, which is merciful and loving. Look at verse 4, who is rich in mercy. Psalm 103.10 says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. That is a way of saying he did not give us what we deserve. 
That's what mercy is. God shows his love to us because he does, in one way, is he does not give us what we deserve. We have broken his laws continually in thought, word, deed, or motive, and he doesn't give us what we deserve because he's rich in mercy. Now, I might have mercy, but I don't know if I'm rich in mercy, (laughs) but I'm so glad he is. Because of his great love, now the word there is agape. Now, agape is a type of love. There are different types of love according, you know, the Greek language has four different words for it. Eros is one where we get the word erotic. That's the husband and wife kind of love. Um, You have uh, storge, which is a family type of love. You have philea, which is brotherly love, the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And then you have agape. Now, this is a type of love. This love loves because of the lover not because of the one being loved. The reason for the love exists only in the lover. It has nothing to do with the object being loved. This love, more than a feeling, is a choice. It is a choice to do what is right. This love is a choice to do what is right always for the object of its love. This love is unconditional. This love is not because somebody's lovely. This love is a choice. You say, well, I don't know why God loves me. I'm so unlovable. The the reason for his love exists in him, not in you. Now, I would say that marriages could learn, probably benefit from learning about this kind of love, because this is the kind of love you have to have in your marriage if you have a Christian marriage. This is it. Great love because of what price it paid in sending Jesus. Now, Verse 5, what has God done? What did he do? He did it out of his mercy and out of his love for us. Verse 5 says, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ. Now, this is staggering if you really think through this. Even when we were dead in trespasses. That means that God loves the unlovely. He loves the undeserving. You know, over the years in ministry, I've met many people who would come to me and say, I'm really having a hard time because I feel unworthy and I feel undeserving. And they'll point to a bunch of stuff they did in their past. Maybe they never had a dad or something that you know, whatever it might be. And they will point to something, you know, and they will, they, for whatever reason, they will be hung up on this whole, I'm not worthy and I'm undeserving of God's love. Now, I was listening to a sermon from a pastor that I believe he made a terrible mistake in trying to convince his congregation that they were worthy. And I've heard well-meaning people try to do that, especially in youth ministries, try to convince the kid, oh, you're worthy of God's love. You're deserving of God's love. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that not one of us is worthy of God's love. None of us are deserving of God's love. But he gives it anyway. The glory goes to him, not to you for how much you deserve it. It goes to him. When people come to me with this issue, I always try to offer them the sort of help 
that, off, that was offered to me. And it was somebody telling me just that. Oh, no, you're under an incredible burden trying to mentally make yourself worthy. Why don't you just let that go and receive God's love? You can leave a tremendous burden behind today by trying to make yourself presentable to God. I grew up with a stepmom that spent a lot of time trying to make herself presentable to go into public. So that, that picture comes to my mind of trying to make ourselves presentable. And we do that with God, don't we? We're always trying to give God a reason why he should bless us. We're always trying to like convince him. We're always saying, look at my track record. Look how good I look. Look at all these things in my life. Lord, I've been in the Bible every day this week. Bless me because I'm worthy. I'm deserving. I would just encourage you today to let that go because you're not ever going to do that. And God's love is so amazing because it is unlovely. Even while we were, it's for the unlovely. Even while we were dead in trespasses and sins, that's when he made us alive because of his mercy and his great love for the unlovable. It's a huge burden to let go of. Goes on to say, he made us alive together with Christ. And he says, by grace, you've been saved. I love it. He just interjects that there. He just, when theology turns into worship, he's saying, this is so great that God makes alive unworthy, undeserving sinners. He makes them alive by his grace. Oh my gosh, by grace, you've been saved. And he just bursts out. You know, it reminds me maybe like the Pentecostal church, like, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And the lady throws her hat and like cartwheel down the aisle and praise God. So good. He says, by grace you've been saved. Now grace, if mercy is not getting what you do deserve, grace is getting what you do not deserve. I need to try to convince myself of why I deserve salvation all the time. No, no, that would not be grace then. Once you enter into this deserving and earning and meriting and achieving, you are entering the world of wages, not grace. Verse 6 says, And he raised us up together, and he made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now look at the past tense on those. This is how God sees you now, if you are a Christian, if you're in Christ. He sees us raised up together and sit, sitting together with him in the heavenly places. You say, well, I'm sitting right here today. What do you mean I'm sitting in the heavenly places? I mean, I think my body's right here in Mason City. Positionally. God the Father sees you united to Christ. You've been raised up as Christ came out of the grave. You've been raised up. What does that mean practically to you? That means that you can count on the fact that you're on the other side of death, that that's not going to hold you down because you've been raised with him. It also means that you're seated in heaven. Now, this is an interesting thing to think about because this world, as it tries to squeeze you into its mold, some of us find ourselves being very concerned about the things of this world. But I'll tell you, when I remind myself that I'm seated in heaven, that I'm seated with the king, it kind of helps me to have a good perspective on things in this world. I could just kind of take it or leave it, you know? I don't get all that wrapped up about the things that people that don't know God are all wrapped up about, right? I can kind of get off that treadmill. I can just enjoy the fact that I'm a citizen of heaven. I can live like a citizen of heaven here in Mason City. What a burden that takes off. Look at this. You're not going to believe this. Look at verse 7. 
Verse 6, I mean, he raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know, one of my favorite things to do, uh, I used to live in SoCal and uh, Huntington Beach, Seal Beach area. Oh, it's a, if you've ever been there, you can, you're just like, oh yeah, <laughs> the weather, you know, just, I mean, the weather, if anything. And I used to just love and I'd sit on the beach and I would just watch the waves roll in, just, you know. And um, that's the idea here where he says in the ages to come, it's like the language of the ages just rolling in like that, one after another. What this is getting at is for eternity. When we step into eternity out of these bodies, for the first 1,000 years, 10,000 years, 100,000 years, what is God going to be doing? He's going to be showing us the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us. Like waves rolling in one after another, the ages will keep coming in. And through that whole time, you're going to keep learning, I believe, in heaven about God's grace. He's going to keep <laughs> showing his kindness to you over thousands and thousands and thousands of years. I think the hymn writer had something to do with this when he said, when we've been here 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun, right? That's the idea. It's just for eternity Let's just wrap our minds around this. Let's, let's recap. For all you organized people that, you know, we got to, let's recap, okay? So you're dead in trespasses and sins under the influence of Satan, rebellious to God, but he comes into your life. He makes you alive. He fills you with Christ. He seats you in heavenly places, forgives your sins, and for all eternity, he's going to just show his kindness and his grace to you. Okay. I mean, you'd be kind of silly to reject that. You know, friends, this is just the beginning. Now it's going to move into one of the clearest presentations of how salvation happens in the Bible. And this is our last point. How it happened and what it does. How salvation happened and what salvation does. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Man, oh man. My, this is my first memory verse, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. These two verses, I love these verses. These are my favorite, some of my favorites in the whole Bible right here. Because it's the clearest proclamation, presentation of how salvation happens. Verse 8 through nine. It talks about how salvation comes as a gift of God's grace through faith in Jesus, not of our works. Where it says, for by grace you have been saved. Now, grace is undeserved, it's unearned, it's unmerited favor from God. It comes from the root word where we get our word charity. Now, to help you understand this, and forgive me, you know, you've heard this a million times, but it's a good illustration, but like, so just think of charity. If I want to give, you know, $100 to charity, and so I call the place, I say, I'm going to make a donation, $100, I'm just going to give it to you as charity, and then I say, 
but I want you to put a picture of me on the side of your building and, uh, you know, say, this is, this is the Adam Tyler building because, you know, he, he made such a great charity donation to the church. Put his picture on there. I'm sorry, but that's not charity. We're talking about wages and earning. I just paid you to put my face on your building. That's marketing is what that is. Oh, I gave the golf check. Well, but you stood in the picture and got over your Facebook and shook hands with everybody and networked at the mixer, and that was what was going on in your heart. Now, charity is no strings attached. Here you go. I want to. There you go. No strings attached. Well, let me pay you something for that. No, you can't. Well, let me mow your lawn. Oh, you can't do that. That's grace. That's charity. I've given, even if you come in here today and, and uh, you know, you know, I'm just going to stop with that. It's just such a staggering thing to think about because if you realize, so many people are not operating in a relationship of grace with God. They're operating in this earning and deserving and, and it's, it's transactions. It's transactional. The Bible is telling you plainly that you are born in a helpless condition like old Tom Selleck and Jesus Christ has reached down, grabbed you out of that bad situation, given you everything you need for life and godliness, and put you on the ground and said, now what do you want to do? Because I've given you this charity. I've given this to you freely. Jesus doesn't say, I dug you out of the ocean, and now here, you owe me. That's not what he says. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible is about a God that has mercy on sinners that can't save themselves, and he rescues them as a work of his grace. And maybe you're sitting here saying, are you saying it doesn't matter what we do? I'm glad you're asking that question because if grace is preached clearly, that is the natural question. In fact, Paul deals with it in the book of Romans. For by grace you've been saved, and it says through faith. Now, faith, is this is the part where it's our responsibility, okay? Faith, what you do in faith is this is how you receive God's grace. The faith is our responsibility, now, where it goes on to say, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Some people have mistaken that and said, see, faith is a gift of God. Faith is not the gift of God. The Greek construct of this verse means where he says that not of yourselves, the whole thing, salvation by grace through faith is not of yourselves. It's of God. Now, faith is your responsibility. This is my responsibility. This is a crude illustration, but if you write me a check for a million dollars, and my part then is to go cash it. I have to go cash it. Do I get credit for the million dollars? No, no, no. It's your money, but my faith went and cashed it. That's what faith is. I might have faith that that chair will hold me, but if I sit in it, you know, I'm exercising faith. I'm receiving the blessing of being able to sit in that chair, you know. So faith is your responsibility. This is our responsibility. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes. Now, that means that you took your responsibility to put your faith in the gospel. You believed. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the power of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Less people knew that one. Belief is our responsibility. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. You get saved by God's grace. God's grace is the means of salvation. Faith is how you receive it. 
You need to do, that's your part. You trust in what God has done for you. Verse 9 says that it is not of works. Now, this is plain as day. Salvation cannot be earned by behaviors. You can't earn salvation. You don't earn salvation by going to church, by reading the Bible, by giving, by getting, by getting confirmed, by, you know, by keeping sacraments, by any of this stuff. You don't, those are, you don't get saved by works. Plain as day right here. You know, it's interesting when a drowning, when somebody's drowning, I don't know if, if this is true. I've, I've never been a lifeguard. But um, apparently they tell the lifeguards, you know, if you're coming up to somebody that's flailing around, you've got to tell them, stop flailing around already, you know, because like, dude, they're going to clock you in the face, you know. And so you have to tell a drowning victim to stop struggling and just receive the rescue. Now, I think that's a really good word for somebody here today, is you just need to stop struggling to make yourself presentable and acceptable and lovable and okay with God and just let Jesus make you okay with God. Amen. Let him grab you. I was talking with my mentor last week and he, uh, he said, he was a surfer in Cali and he said uh, that he, <laughs> he listens to my messages. So <laughs> it's not like I maybe I better not say this stuff. But, well, he said he was out swimming or surfing with a guy one day and the guy just starts drowning and freaking out and he had to literally go punch the guy in the face and knock him out to get him back in. And he said the guy was so embarrassed about it that he never came around. He never talked to him ever again. <laughs> just, never thank you or anything like that. You know, it's like the 10 lepers. Remember Jesus heals the 10 lepers one comes back? This guy is like, oh. <laughs> you know, that's the whole thing though. You've got to stop you know, so you can get rescued. And that's verse nine right there. That'll put an end to your striving right there, won't it? Not of works. People are not saved by works, and they are not saved by faith plus works. They are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Now, the minute that you add any work to the gospel, the, the second that you add that, you're not relating to God based on grace anymore. Paul says in the book of Galatians, you've fallen from grace if that's what you do. Now, Romans eleven six. 6, just listen to this verse. It says, and if by grace, he's talking about salvation. He's saying, and if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace, but it is of works. It is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Right? Oh, it's plain. <laughs> what he's kind of saying is, it's like if your boss gives you, you know, just a gift, and then it says, here, take this thousand bucks. And then while you're walking off, you're like, wow, that's a sweet gift. And goes, hey, but you got to come in Saturday. You're like, oh, <laughs> It's a, it, I, it, this was grace, but you turned it into works. You know, so the second you add one requirement on top of faith, you've perverted the gospel, and this is a serious issue. Paul says people that do this are anathema. It means they're accursed. It's the highest level for accursed that there is. It's a big, serious deal. The two biggest, most important things to me are, what do you say about Jesus? Is he God? Is he fully God? Is he fully man? And what do you do with the gospel? Do you add works to the gospel? Those two things, those are non-negotiables in the Christian life right there. And he goes on to say, lest anyone should boast. I just love that. When you get to heaven, you're not going to have to listen to anybody's old football stories and war stories. Nobody's going to be boasting up there. Well, I'll tell you what, I was really good at faith at church. That's why you see me here today. I'll tell you, boy, I did all kinds of stuff for charity. Blah, 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 blah. You know, uh, nobody's going to do that in heaven. <laughs> 
I was watching this video the other day. This, these kids, they were like, I don't know, maybe five, six years old. And they were in a class, and they were playing some game. And, and you know, it was an educational game, and you had to answer the right question. And this little boy, every time it would go around, um, this little boy, when he would get a right answer, <laughs> it was the coolest thing. This other boy, he would be like, yeah, man, yeah, you're the man, you're the man. And he was like totally boosting him up, you know, and he was like this dude's cheerleader. And it's like, this is the coolest thing, you know, because, and it made me think of this because in heaven, nobody's going to be doing that about themselves, but everybody's going to do that about Jesus. They're going to boast about him and go, man, you did it. I can't believe how you did it. And you'll look around at some other people that'll be like, wow, how'd you get here? And they'll be like, he did it. And we'll be like, no kidding, me too. You know, I went from, I know what you used to be, but look at you're here. And then we'll all boast about Jesus because of that. Oh my gosh, God, to God be the glory, all the glory. I think Keith Green will be there. Oh, Lord, you're beautiful. <laughs> I love that song. Now, this is what salvation makes us into. Look at verse 10. It makes us into his workmanship. Look at that verse 10. For we are his workmanship. In the Greek, the word workmanship is the word poema. What does that sound like? Poem. Oh, it's beautiful. What this is saying is that when you respond to the gospel, you know, God has taken the raw materials of your old, broken, sinful life, and you respond to the gospel, and he gives you new life. You become a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. You become his workmanship, his poem. That is, man, oh, man. Guys, if you're into Christian dating, I mean, that, these are good poetic. You could say, you're my poem to your, no. It means you're his masterpiece. You're his handiwork. I don't know if you think of yourself like that today. Do you think of yourself like that today as God's handiwork, as his masterpiece, as his poem? Man, oh man. He starts with you, with me, broken, flawed, dead in sin, serving ourselves, no regard for him, helpless, drowning. And he gives us life and skillfully, carefully shapes us into his masterpiece. You know, my grandma went to assisted living a while back and... Um, uh, my family's just wrapping up, getting rid of all of her stuff. And tough thing trying to go and decide what you're going to throw out and what you're not, you know. And, uh, you know, when you say, I don't want to throw that out, it's typically stuff that somebody made. You know, in fact, my wife brought home this little plaster thing. I have a picture of it up here. Can't really tell what it is, but that's my handprint from when I was a little kid, you know. And, uh, you know, it's like going through this stuff like, oh, don't throw that out. You know, well, why? Because some, it's, it's got somebody's handprint on it. You've got God's handprint on you. Isn't that something? Here's workmanship. You don't want to throw that out because there is workmanship. Here is handiwork. You're so special to God. You know, I, you know, we ask sometimes questions that are silly before church and our servants meeting. And one of them that ChatGPT always suggests is, um, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? And I'll tell you one thing that I w would wish for is I wish that I could communicate to you how much God loves you. You wouldn't do any of the bad things you do to yourself if you knew that. Or others. I wish I could do that. 
The Holy Spirit can do that. To see yourself through these eyes. I have to tell you, you know, I get down on myself in the ugliness of my sin. And uh, in those times I remember that I am a creation of the master craftsman, that I belong to him. Salvation leads us to walk in good works that God has prepared for us. Look at the rest of verse 10, please. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, we are not saved by works, but we are saved for works. And it's not because we owe God something. It's because this is what we were designed for. I spent my whole 20s wondering what I was designed for, you know? and tried all, every, all different things, and they all came up empty. <clears throat> he has created you for good works to walk in that he planned. He has a blueprint for your life. And that's what you do. That's what you, you spend time with him. You, you say, Holy Spirit, teach me. Open your word. And as you commit yourself to seeking him first, seek first the kingdom of God, as you commit yourself to seeking him first, keeping him in the highest place, staying in his word, he reveals, and it just keeps unfolding. And it's a beautiful thing. He's got a purpose and a plan for your life, and that's what he created you for. And here's workmanship. Here's creation. so beautiful, isn't it? We're born dead. God draws us in. We hear the gospel, place faith in Jesus, become new creations. And then we get to walk after him doing works. And then the Bible teaches us also that we get rewarded then in heaven. <laughs> what a deal. <laughs> so good, God. <laughs> because God has mercifully saved us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this is what I want you to realize here and, and focus on. I want you to leave with this. We must resist the temptation to rely on our own works for salvation and instead humbly trust in him, allowing this truth to transform our lives. Now, listen, this creeps back in even as a believer. Even look at the book of the Galatians. They were saved by grace through faith, but then somebody convinced them. He said, who bewitched you? And they started to go back to the idea of works. Now, I think that this happens because we are also trained towards cause and effect. I mean, it just makes sense. You get what you give, right? I think there's a song that's, you know, no, that's not, it's not what you got, it's what you give. Uh, there's, but that's, that's a statement in this, in, it's a maxim, right? As you get what you give, you know? You put in the sweat and then you get the return. Now, that is how the physical world works. Just ask a farmer. You put in all this work and then, you know, it, it happens, you know? So... We're trained to this, so our minds drift back into this. What can I do? Oh, what am I supposed to be doing to make myself presentable and acceptable to God? And so you have to preach this to yourself often, that we're saved by grace through faith. And it's not of our works, lest anybody should boast. It's all Him. I want to make this statement that I mean, maybe it'll be really radical to you, and maybe it'll just be a good reminder to you, but... God could never love you more than he loves you right now. He just couldn't. He's loved you with an everlasting love. God so loved the world even before you were following him. He loved you as his creation. Now that you're with him, he loves you as his son, as his daughter. There's nothing you can do to improve upon what Jesus did. Now you just rest in that. 